Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Victoria Brownlee. Uh, Victoria is currently the Ireland Programme Manager for Athena Swan, which is a project we'll be chatting to her about shortly. And we're delighted to Victoria today to talk about her new book, Biblical Readings and Literary Writings in Early Modern England, 1558 to 1625 just published by Oxford University Press. Victoria, congratulations on the book and thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, Crawford. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you here. So before we begin talking about this book, which is a tremendous book, can you tell us something about yourself? So Crawford, you mentioned that I manage the Athena Swan programme in Ireland, um, which is a gender equality charter for higher education. And that's what I've been doing um, for the last five months. Uh, Before that, I worked as a lecturer in English, 16th and 17th century in NUI Galway in Ireland. Very good. Uh, Now, this book, as you acknowledge uh, at the very beginning, is based on your PhD thesis, which you did that very estimable university, Queen's University, Belfast. It's amazing for anyone to get their first book published with Oxford. Can you just tell us how you did that? Well, Crawford, it was a long, it was a long road. I think getting any book um, into print um, is is difficult, um, uh, especially one that begins as a PhD project, because I think a PhD project is a great foundation for a book, um, but it's also not a book. So getting to the end of the PhD was one thing, um, but I got fantastic advice um, during my Viva and from my supervisor um, as to I suppose, how best to disseminate the research in the PhD. Um, I was very fortunate to get an um, Irish Research Council postdoc fellowship um, uh, two years after I finished my PhD. And I think that was really foundational to getting the book um, together. I suppose taking it um, from a PhD thesis and um, into a book. And there's quite a bit of new research and um, uh, new writing. Uh, I had a great mentor at uh, UCD where I had that postdoc. So I think I'd, I'd lots of good advisors along the way. Um, and then patience. Uh, I, uh, Oxford, I knew, um, uh, would, would be a good publisher somewhere, um, I'd like. Uh, to be published and um, I contacted them they were interested there was lots of back back and forwards lots of lots of readings and re-readings and uh, changing um, so I would say patience um, and uh, having good good advisors was with how I got the book into print. Well it certainly paid off in the end it's a really tremendous piece of work and in fact as I was just saying to you before we went on to air it's a book we're going to be using for teaching purposes next year um, it's, it's a great book for, for undergraduates and postgraduates as well as academics to engage with. Um, before we begin talking about the content of the book, could you tell us about the structure? 
Yes. So the book um, has an introductory uh, chapter as well as a preface. And it was the work of the, the preface is to say, what is this book about and how does it relate to other scholarship um, that's in the, the sphere of early modern studies on uh, early modern religion, um, on the Bible and literature um, and on post-Reformation history. So that's kind of the work of the preface. The introduction, uh, the introductory chapter then um, I suppose guides the reader through what kind of uh, society um, uh, I'm talking about, uh, the sort of um, access to the Bible, the the influence of the Bible in society, which is very different to today, um, the, the way people read the Bible. But then the subsequent chapters are all uh, hung around a popularly interpreted biblical narrative in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and the reason I chose to structure the book in that way was I wanted to highlight the variety of ways that the Bible was used in the period and um, that if uh, if you wanted to know how to treat your king, you read the Bible in the 16th and 17th century. Um, attitudes towards women, uh, towards motherhood and uh, childbirth were very much rooted in the Bible. But the Bible also was a means of debating um, the, the capabilities and limitations of language. Um, so I suppose the reason to structure around um, individual uh, biblical narratives was was to highlight that there wasn't a uniform way of reading the Bible in the period, um, but it really was incredibly diverse. Oh, sounds like the kind of thing could help, help us with Brexit. Um, <laughs> but if we, if we go to your title, you use the term biblical readings uh, yes. in your title. What, what Bibles are being read in this period? Which Bibles in particular are you most interested in? Well, probably um, for the time frame of my book, um, which is the, the mid 16th century into the early part of the 17th century, the Geneva Bible was most influential um, and most popularly read. Um, it was accessible, uh, lots of copies being printed in um, in England in that period. Um, and but also the the authorised version, or what's sometimes known as the King James Bible, published in 1611. 1611. So I my book looks at both of those um, Bibles and engagement with those versions as well as others. One of the things I really enjoyed about the introduction to your book is the way in which you show that uh, the, the literary culture, which we often think of as very logocentric, um, is, is much more than that, that the experience of, of reading the Bible is an experience of reading an illustrated text. But why is that significant in your reading of these readings? Well, I think the Bible circulated in lots of different ways in this period. And, um, you know, as modern readers, we, we think of physically reading sitting down to read a copy of the Bible. Um, but the reality was in the 16th and 17th century, um, literacy levels aren't um, uh, what they are today. And many people engaged with the Bible either um, uh, audibly hearing it, um, being read aloud in the home, in sermons, um, but also visually in the theatre where uh, biblical narratives were popularly played or uh, through ballads and songs um, and also in stained glass uh, representations of biblical stories or in images that appeared in cheap print. And um, so the Bible really was everywhere in the 16th and 17th century uh, society. And that's something that's very difficult for us um, as modern readers uh, to get to grips with. Hmm. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your date range, Victoria, 1558 to 1625? Why did you choose that particular chronological frame? Well, I wanted the reader um, or the potential reader to know immediately the kind of focus of the book. And so I decided to tie it um, to uh, the late uh, Tudor period and uh, early Stuart. So 1625, uh, the death of uh, James I. Um, So I wanted to tie it uh, to those reigns because those were most central uh, to the literature that I was focusing on. But I do explain in the preface that um, because I think about the relationship between literature and um, uh, the, the aftermath of the, the Reformation or the religious changes of the, the 16th century, that I talk about earlier uh, biblical texts um, uh, in terms of exegesis and sermons and also later texts as well to try and give a flavour of what was happening um, before and after the literature that I consider. So, Victoria, if, as you just mentioned, uh, literacy levels are very low, if, if only a few people could, could, could read uh, proportionally uh, to the population at large, why were books important? And specifically, why was the Bible such an important book? I think the Bible was important because people believed it uh, to be the authoritative word of God. And certainly for Protestants, um, the physical, you know, book and the, the words of the Bible um, were central uh, because they were moving away from an understanding of a faith that was connected to history of the church um, and uh, church pronouncements to saying, no, the words as we have them in the Bible are really the only way that we can uh, understand uh, our, our relationship with God, but also um, our day to day lives. So that, that being the case, given that literacy levels were so low, how did people engage with this sacred book? Did they read the Bible passively or, or actively, individually, in groups, devotionally, intellectually? Um, are there any examples of, of particularly interesting active reading that you could point us to? Well, I think there, there's two different ways of experiencing the Bible in this period. For those who couldn't read, um, it, it may have been uh, someone read to you aloud uh, through your, your attendance at church, um, through uh, hearing public preaching, which was considered to be a form of entertainment in the period, um, uh, going to plays and so on. Um, but but if you could read, um, I think reading the Bible was both an individual activity and one that happened as part of a larger community. So certainly in Protestant um, culture at the time, individuals were encouraged to engage with their Bible devotionally um, and that devotional reading would be active. So pen in hand, uh, writing out portions of the Bible, annotating um, the, the biblical text. Um, there were uh, memory aids uh, to assist people uh, in retaining huge swathes of biblical text. And um, so it was really allowing the words of the Bible to shape one's uh, kind of heart. The, the term fashion, uh, the heart, uh, was used quite a lot in the period to describe uh, devotional writing. Um, and or de- uh, devotional reading um, and the, the writing that was connected. Um, I would think as well uh, that in terms of reading the Bible in community, uh, that's important 
in in ascertaining, well, who has the authority to say what the Bible means. So while Protestantism encouraged individuals to read the Bible, uh, they wanted that biblical reading to take place within the framework of um, catechism and uh, uh the, uh, the sermons of uh, the church, uh, which would guide understanding as opposed to individuals just deciding for themselves what the words meant. OK, that, that's helpful. So the experience of Bible reading is a community experience for, for, for many, if not most Bible readers. But yet it's also actively individual, isn't it, in this period? Yeah. And you, you give us some lovely examples here of um, advice literature, I suppose you could call it, books published to explain how to read the Bible, when to read the Bible, um, as you just mentioned, strategies for memorization. How much of the Bible were people reading and when were they reading it? Uh, well, that depends on what advice they were receiving and which guidebooks they were reading on how how uh, the Bible should be read. Um, and you're right, there, there are many different examples in the opening chapter of the book. Um, most guides during this period encouraged uh, sequential reading. And um, so that is reading the Bible from um, the, the Old Testament to the New Testament in order to understand uh, the kind of Christological narrative that the Old Testament was pointing towards um, the coming of Christ as described in the New Testament. Um, that's not to say that that people always read the Bible that way and cross-referencing uh, cross and cross-reading was very much encouraged. So if you pick up a copy of the um, of a Geneva Bible in this period, you'll see that the Geneva text has lots of cross-references. And um, so if you're reading um, Isaiah, it will point you to uh, portions of the Gospels um, that, that Isaiah may be referencing. So while people might have been reading through the Bible, they will also have been uh, flicking uh, across different books and different uh, the, both testaments um, as part of their reading. There's also some evidence that that people use the liturgical um, calendar, um, the, the Book of Common Prayer to structure their reading. Um, some guidebooks in this period advise people to read um, a chapter of the Old Testament, a chapter of the New Testament and a chapter of the Psalms. Uh, certainly scholars who've worked on uh, Psalm reading in the period have shown that that was a, a really central book um, for biblical readers. Fascinating. Now, you, your own book here that we're talking about today uh, is, is, I suppose, an example of doing exactly this, isn't it? It's, an it's structured consecutively from Old to New Testament, but each chapter also shows us uh, how passages can be read through Scripture typologically, um, as, as, as we'll see in a moment, as we'll think about in, in, in a moment. But I suppose one of the obvious questions to, to follow on from what you've just said is a question about hermeneutics. So mm -hmm. if Bible readers are reading through the Bible, but also across the Bible, as you just as you just emphasised, are they reading this text literally? If, if, if they're trying to spot connections between, as you just said, um, Isaiah and the Gospels uh, or, or other Old Testament narratives and, and other aspects of New Testament doctrine, for example, uh, are they always reading according to the literal sense? Well, 
That's a great question, uh, Crawford. Um, and it's it's something I was really interested in the book because when I started to think about Protestants reading the Bible, um, the, you know, I had the mantra uh, of of uh, Protestantism, which is uh, there's only one literal sense. Um, uh, there's only sorry. There's only one sense, and that is the literal sense, and um, which is kind of the common Protestant mantra in this period. Um, and initially, when I started the research, I thought that meant well, the Protestants were committed to a, what we would define as a literal reading of the Bible. But actually, how Protestants defined literalism was was quite different. Um, Protestant literalism could encompass uh, typology, sometimes allegory. Um, and, and that really was necessary when we when we think how the Bible itself is written, and um, because the Bible uses similes and metaphors and um, parables are used um, to teach in the in the New Testament. And um, a book like Revelation is described as a prophecy. Um, and then we've got the Song of Songs, which which I imagine we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so. In order to to get to grips with um, the different writing styles in the Bible, Protestants had to uh, argue for a literal sense that was that was quite flexible. Um, and I think it's John Donne who says that the literal sense ultimately is the intention of the Holy Spirit. And um, so so it's so it's very broad. And um, how how many Protestants are defining the literal sense? Well, it's striking, isn't it, when you come to a passage like Galatians four? In which Paul says this is an allegory. <laughs> how, mm. um, how early modern commentators really work hard to try and work out what what that means. How how you can read an allegory in a literal way, and of course, that's missing the point. It's a massive subject you're talking about here, Victoria, the Bible and early modern literature. Uh, and obviously, you're writing about this not just as an historian, as we've just been thinking about historical context and social significance and, and practice and so forth. But you're also writing as a literary critic. How, how have other literary critics thought generally about the significance of the Bible in this period? Well, there's in the last probably uh, 20 years, especially, there's been a huge surge um, of interest in the relationship between early modern literature and the Bible. There have been a fantastic um, range of uh, studies um, Unsurprisingly, many of those have focused on Shakespeare, um, everything from biblical references in Shakespeare to uh, allusions um, that that might be in uh, the language of Shakespeare's uh, plays and poems. Um, so a lot of the work has probably been author focused. Um, Shakespeare, Milton, uh, Mary Sidney, um, but but there's also been um, work that's thought about uh, genres, so in relation to uh, poetry, um, and there's been work on uh, biblical women as well, uh, thinking about their influence on uh, drama and in other texts. Um, what? So I suppose my book very much is building on um, on that range of scholarship that's that's emerged, um, and. But it's trying to uh, draw, uh, I suppose, uh, different genres together within uh, the various chapters. So I look at drama and poetry. I look at a variety of writers. But then there's also some um, uh, uh, 
consideration of uh, visual media in the period, like stained glass, woodcuts, uh, and so on, uh, in order to think about how how uh, the drama of the period, the poetry of the period, um, is is operating within this huge kind of biblical, uh, biblically saturated culture. Mm. It's fascinating, as you tell us there, that there has been a surge of interest in the last 20 years in biblical references in early modern writing. And, and yet you say somewhere in the book that there still exists a, a large body of biblical poetry that's never really been explored. Yes, that's right. Um, and I, I look at a couple of examples um, of that poetry, um, someone like William uh, Baldwin, Francis Quarles. Um, they, they're writers that were hugely popular in the period, um, but haven't received an awful lot of uh, critical attention. Um, I, despite the growing interest in uh, the relationship between literature and the Bible in early modern studies. Um, Biblical verse paraphrase um, was immensely popular um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, An alternative way of getting to grips with the the Bible's content. Um, But it's also part of that active reading strategy that uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier, um, some individuals writing poetry as part of their uh, devotional uh, reading of the Bible. And I think it's really important that we uh, that we do think about the work that's um, being done um, uh, in relation to biblical verse paraphrase in this period, because if we exclude it, we're excluding lots of writing by women, uh, lots of writing by um, uh, by lay men as well. And it's a, I think it's potentially a really rich uh, avenue for study. Hmm. Another thing that really struck me as being important about your book is its emphasis upon biblical drama, something that historians of the Reformation are sometimes a bit nervous uh, to approach, but we deal with it in quite considerable detail here. Yes, so... You know the the history of um, biblical drama is is a long one. Um, biblical uh, drama was used uh, prior to the Reformation, medieval mystery cycles, uh, and so on, in order to teach seminal passages of the Bible. Um, so that that continues after the Reformation. It changes, um, but it does continue. And um, so the reformers are really drawing on a on an older tradition of using um, plays to to teach uh, the Bible. What we begin to see in the later um, half of the the 16th century is that drama very much not being. Um, a, a straightforward uh, repetition of, of biblical narrative, but really a forum in which you can debate uh, doctrine, uh, alternative interpretations of the Bible, and even comment on um, uh, the politics mm. of the 16th and 17th century. Mm. So when we think about uh, Puritanism and its rejection of the stage or its hostility to the stage, and as we think about Shakespeare's Malvolio or Ben Jonson's Zeal of the Land Busy, we're looking at a much later relationship between Reformation and the stage than the kinds of things you speak about in this book, aren't you? we? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think in the 17th century, uh, the attitudes towards the stage uh, shift among Puritans, as you mentioned. Um, but in the, the first decade of the 17th century, there's a flurry of, um, of biblical plays. Um, and we can assume 
many of them are now lost, but we can assume that uh, those plays were performed because there was a demand um, among audiences um, and uh, a willingness among dramatists uh, to produce that content. But you're quite right, by the time we get to 1620 uh, uh, and later, those those kinds of plays um, aren't aren't popping up on the on the register of uh, plays in the period. So Victoria, one of the one of the first and most important case studies you give us in the book is a study of how the character of Solomon was read in early modern literature. Really interesting case study because Solomon in the Old Testament and Kings and Chronicles is such an equivocal figure. He's the greatest of Israel's kings, but he's also the king who um, introduces idolatry, has what, 300 wives, 700 concubines, something like that. A, a, a very equivocal figure, perhaps, to represent the Tudor or Stuart monarchs in association with. Why were early modern writers drawn to Solomon? What could Solomon do for them? Well, I think early modern uh, writers were interested in Israelite history generally. That's that's the first thing to say. They were fascinated with um, the relationship between Israel and England. Um, and some of that uh, was was the result of perhaps a distancing, um, particularly among Protestants from um, uh, church history. Uh, church history as uh, conceived by uh, the Catholic Church um, and a desire to to point to an alternative Protestant history um, and uh, draw out a connection between uh, kind of triumphant English uh, history as they would see it and triumphant English Protestantism um, and uh, the triumphs of Israel. And so Solomon, as you mentioned, uh, famous uh, Old Testament king, uh, famous particularly for his wisdom and his wealth um, and and his authority. And one can see many successes uh, in Solomon's reign. And I think that was the, the initial uh, attraction for, for early modern monarchs who wanted to identify with uh, Solomon and other uh, Israelite kings. Um, they they wanted to be seen as wise like Solomon, rich like Solomon, um, and uh, to have dominion um, like Solomon had uh, over his territories. I think one of the difficulties of of that was that uh, Solomon was not the kind of exemplary king that many early modern writers um, and kings would have liked him to be. And there is, as as you mentioned in your question, that whole end section to Solomon's narrative in Kings that points to the fact that um, you know he was disobedient ultimately to God um, in in his choice of wives um, and in the introduction. Um, uh, of idols. So I think one of the challenges for early modern writers was identifying with Solomon selectively. So that's something I look at in this chapter, just how selectively Solomon is read in order to um, kind of boost Tudor and Stuart ideas of kingship. So we have popular, uh, lots of popular identification of um, of Henry VIII and of James I with Solomon, but also interestingly um, of Elizabeth with Solomon. And all of that requires this uh, immensely selective reading um, of, of his text. 
And there's some good examples of that. Um, so John Williams in his funeral sermon uh, to James the first uh, talks about how uh, James can be compared to Solomon in all of his virtues um, and only fleetingly acknowledges that uh, Solomon had some, um, uh, you know, some negative points, but uh, none of these are relevant to to King James. Um, and one of the, the things I look at in the book at is the fact that that's, that's quite difficult to do um, in a culture where people were reading the Bible and would have been aware of the whole narrative. Hmm. Um, and I think that becomes more problematic when you see uh, Solomon identified with monarchs in drama uh, because drama is uh, fluid and flexible and uh, shows kind of narrative progression. Uh, the, the Westminster Boys um, uh, School in 1565 performed a play about Solomon's uh, reign in front of Elizabeth. Um, when Princess uh, Cecilia of Sweden was visiting. And the play was um, written uh, by German dramatists, but adapted um, very much to pay homage to Elizabeth and all of her graces um, uh, and, and her authority. So it identifies Elizabeth with Solomon um, and uh, Cecilia with um, uh, the Queen of Sheba. And it goes through the building of the temple and the examples of Solomon's wisdom and so on. Uh, but but there are these moments where we, we see the kind of darker, more problematic elements of uh, Solomon's narrative um, uh, bleeding through the drama. Um, and I think those moments really highlight uh, the complexity of identifying with any with any biblical figure, um, not least um, uh, an Old Testament king. Well, we, we get traces of Solomon in one of your other case studies, uh, which is the early modern reading of the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs or Canticles. Uh, and, and I suppose here in this chapter, uh, you, you, you show very clearly how lots of early modern Protestants in particular went to great lengths not to read the text literally. So what for them did the Song of Songs mean if it wasn't an actual account of an actual love affair? What was the text about and what was the text for? Well, I think... For most people in this period, um, the, the Song of Songs or the Canticles described the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, and that that interpretation was argued for on the basis of the, the kind of cross reading that I mentioned earlier. So um, the, the New Testament epistles, who talk, which talk about um, uh, Christ's love for the church, and um, that's kind of read back onto the relationship that's described in Solomon. The problem with that reading for early modern commentators is that they have to work quite hard um, to, to, I suppose, prove to their readers that this is really what's intended by this biblical book and to offset some of the sensual imagery in, in that book. And there's lots of concern in this period about how, um, the, how the lay reader might be distracted by the, the erotic imagery in the Song of Songs. And what's, what's interesting is that perhaps one of the most poetic books, um, of the Bible produces 
the most lumpen commentary. Mm. Um, certainly, uh, commentary in Song of Songs is re- incredibly dense in this period and, and often incredibly dull. Um, and it's like uh, commentators want to use uh, more and more words to take the reader away from um, from that sensual imagery, which they fear is a distraction um, to the reader's devotion. Mm. Well, you, you continue this fascinating discussion of um, uh, of gender in, in your chapter on Mary and, and birth in women's writing in the 17th century in particular. Fascinating chapter. Do you think, Victoria, we still need to advocate for the study of women's writing in early modern studies? Well, I think in an ideal world, uh, women's writing would be read alongside men's writing and we'd be studying, um, you know, early modern writing, uh, that, that interests us. Um, the reality is that for, for many years, um, early modern women, women's writing was neglected. And I think that there's value to, to studying women's writing specifically in order to uh, raise awareness of the kinds of texts that women were uh, reading and the kinds of texts that women were writing. So I think there's, there, there's very much, um, uh, kind of virtue in, uh, in, in studying women's writing. Um, and, and of course, women in this period faced some restrictions in terms of what they could write and what they could read, um, which, which also makes it appropriate um, to study on its own. Do you think Bible reading gave women an opportunity for a voice in this period? Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, many women find find a voice um, and find a writing um, uh, voice and and a very brave one, as as the examples um, I use in this chapter uh, suggest. Um, I suppose the Bible legitimised women having um, uh, the right to speak up on particular issues because of the general encouragement that every individual should read the Bible for their own edification. Um, and, and And I think that What's fascinating when uh, you look at what uh, women were writing in this period is is the complexity um, uh, of of their work on biblical texts. So in this chapter, I look at Amelia Lanier and Dorothy Lee, and um, both of whom um, use uh, typology extensively, showing not only that women like men read the Bible, and um, not only that women like men wrote um, about the Bible, but also women like men interpreted the Bible in this period. Well, Victoria, that, that's a perfect way for us to come to the conclusion uh, of our, our, our chat uh, today. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk about this magnificent new book, Biblical Readings and Literary Writings in Early Modern England, 1558 to 1625, just published by Oxford. So thanks for sharing this work with us. But before you go, can you tell us a little bit more about your current work with Athena Swan? So, as I mentioned, I manage the Athena Swan program in Ireland, um, and that's a charter which universities um, and institutes of technology can sign up to um, and uh, as a means of improving uh, gender equality in, in their institutions and um, improving the representation 
of uh, women and men in subjects where they might be underrepresented. Um, so I uh, go out, meet institutions and um, talk to them about um, the application process um, and offer training and support. So I'm not doing uh, research at the moment, but I, I do hope to um, uh, do some work in the next little while on uh, 17th century um, prophetesses and their readings of the Bible. Wonderful. Well, it's, it's a great role and it's a great project. You've given us some time now to read before your next project comes out. Biblical Readings and Literary Writings in Early Modern England, 1558 to 1625. Thank you, Victoria. And thanks to all of you for listening today. I'll see you next time here on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you and goodbye.